Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the uh, Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Timothy Malafite, anthropologist, author, educator, uh, currently clinical professor at Fordham Gabelli School of Business, previously at BBDO, uh, an advertising firm. And um, while their great client list, you know, wonderful experience, companies like AT&T and FedEx and HBO and Pepsi and author of, or I should say maybe co-author and co-edited five academic books, Women, Consumption, and Paradox, Magical Capitalism, Ethics in the Anthropology of Business, Advertising and Anthropology, and Advertising Cultures. And um, so, Tim, thanks for coming on. It's, it's a great pleasure to talk to you in this format. Would you start by telling everybody how you got interested in anthropology? Hi, Matt. Well, first, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here and uh, welcome, everyone. Um, sure, uh, I will have an origin story, I'm sure, like many others, that is full of serendipity and unusual turns and twists, uh, as we all have. Um, I went undergrad to Fordham University. It's funny, I'm doing full circle teaching here now. I went undergrad to Fordham University, and uh, I went to Fordham because I, before Fordham, I had a previous life, life as a dancer. I danced for the Joffrey Ballet, and I was at Lincoln Center, and I saw the campus right there across. So uh, I checked it out, and uh, I went, uh, got my degree in psychology. They gave me life experience credit. It was all great. And it was in my senior year that I took a course in anthropology, two courses, magic, science, and religion, and just fell in love with it. That was my turning point. Uh, Stuart Guthrie was the uh, professor there. Uh, he's written a lot on cognitive anthropology. And anyhow, so I was sold in anthropology. So I applied to schools in anthropology and I uh, went to Brown University for my degree because I was interested at the time in performance studies. I was going to take my background in dance and combine it, look at uh, performance and culture. So I I went to Brown and did my doctoral work in uh, Spain field work. I wrote on flamenco performance and dance as a national symbol of Spain. Nothing to do at all with business. Of course, uh, here comes the big twist, uh, the, the anthropological turn or the business turn, as they say. So I graduated from Brown, uh, had done well in Spain, got a Fulbright to go there, study um, again, flamenco culture as a representation of performance and culture in Spain. And then uh, got out and in 1997 and could not find a job in academia. I sent out 50 some uh, CVs to different departments and nothing. So it just so happened that I sent uh, a resume to a recruiter in New York City. And I remember this. Uh, he, he, I sent out you know anything and anything that I could. And he contacted me back and said, Hi, I want to. Uh, you know, I'm interested in you. He said, uh, first of all, your your resume is terrible. It it sucks. You have to redo this. You know. So I didn't know about writing a good resume. Uh, he he helped me with that. But he said, I'm going to work with you because my daughter went to Brown and she had danced at the Joffrey School. So never uh, cut short your possible connections with people. They they may work with you later in life. So he helped me. Um, uh, send out resumes 
And and by the way, at Brown, I had heard of, uh, I was thinking, what am I going to do with my degree in anthropology? And I had heard of this marketing uh, consumer research organization in New York City called Holland North America. And this is a great origin story because this is where I met Rita Denny, Marianne McCabe, uh, Robert Moisey was there, uh, Tom Moschio, I had some connection with this. But Holland North America was an early on in the, in, um, a anthropological consulting firm. And so in the 1990, uh, when I was uh, doing my, um, my first year at Brown, I went down there and met Steve Barnett, who's like one of the great gurus of the advertising world. He's an anthropologist. And he introduced me to Marianne and Rita, and, and I came on as an intern. So I got my work doing consulting work for Saatchi and Saatchi in advertising from Holland North America. So this was in my background, and this helped me then when the recruiter saw my uh, resume and helped me get a job. So then in 97, when I graduated, I had a little bit of experience doing some consulting work. And then he put me in touch with an ad agency, Free Ginsburg. So I had intended to go into performance studies and I ended up going into advertising marketing. And uh, this was the time of when um, the planning, account planning was really big and it was looking at consumers. So. Uh, the uh, account planning director at Avery Free Ginsburg, Stuart Grau, said, um, wow, you know, come on. And I came on board and I started working in advertising. I went from uh, Avery Free Ginsburg about three years to Darcy, Massius, Benton and Bowles in Detroit for about three years. I worked on Cadillac there. And then my, the main length of time, about 10 years, uh, nine and a half years was at BBDO in New York. But all of this uh, was serendipitous and from the contact and from, um, you know, uh, looking at consumer behavior and how you can reinterpret that and, and apply it to brands and people's relationships with brands and people, how people form identity with brands and people build rituals or, around brands. Uh, there's just a lot of rich material where anthropologists can contribute to market sense and market understanding uh, through, through this. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Great story. And, um, you know, first, let me ask just one question out of curiosity. Um, obviously, our, you know, the theories and methods of anthropology very much lend themselves to advertising, as you just mentioned. And, you know, the classic things we study, like, you know, rituals and, and so on and so forth, make a lot of sense there. But was there anything about performance study that also helped you in the advertising world? Because, you know, it, it does seem that advertising is quite performative in its own right, even the culture of advertising agencies to some degree. Good, good question. Uh, yeah, it was great. You know, in performance theory, it's great because you look at um, some of the proponents are, of course, Victor Turner and Richard Schechner wrote a lot on that. And you look at the scale between how ritual and performance there's a scale are very much alike, you know, in ritual, it's, it's getting things, passing the certain sequence, getting things done that are exact in performance. It's how you do it, how you come across. It's the aesthetics of how you perform. So both in the process, as you described, advertising itself is, is about trying to persuade audiences that, that they, there's an affinity, they need this brand, that there's something that this can, they can benefit in your life. So writing, research and then adapting it to the creative directions was helpful there to try to make it more performative as it was looking at the rituals in people's lives and, and the sequences of behaviors that, that where brands could fit in. So it was helpful uh, anthropological background to look at uh, people's lives in terms of what rituals you could adapt or brands could adapt like Getting ready in the morning was a great example. Um, when I came in, one previous example was like we had one client that was a deodorant, a, a women's deodorant, a Gillette, and then their deodorant for women. And they looked psychologically at how women thought about the sense of smell, what appealed to them, how they wanted to, what motivated them to put on fragrance and how they wanted to appeal to others. But it was really neat when we did ethnographic work and we said no let's not take that uh putting deodorant out of context what's that whole 
getting ready ritual, the beauty ritual, if you will, of getting ready in the morning or going out in the evening. So we looked at all the combination of things that went together. So rather than extracting the idea of deodorant alone and what, what its motivations are, we recontextualized it in the situation of getting ready and all the other accompanying rituals. And we saw that there are many nuances, like women would use different fragrances for deciding how they went out. So actually, it was surprising for Gillette, some of the women did not want a scented deodorant. Uh, it, they didn't understand that at first, but now it made sense because women would want to layer their scents, how they, the scent, how they came across, or they, some days when they were shaving, they'd put lotions on, they wanted some with fragrance, some without. But it was all about here again, the performative sense of getting ready to go out uh, to meet the world or going out on a date or getting ready. And we looked at the rituals and all the components that went together that made sense that came together. It was a much fuller picture than just taking the idea of motivations and the psychological direction of uh, fragrance alone. So that's an example of where um, anthropological research was helpful for the client more than the psychological approach. And at that time, and I've asked a few people this, including Tom, who who you, you just mentioned and was actually the last guest. But at that time, in your experience, and I get that it's different for everybody, but how was that, how was your approach perceived? Was it a little bit of a battle for you to kind of first maybe, you know, get uh, get buy-in to do an ethnographic study? And then how was, how were the, ultimately the insights received? Well, so I came at BBDO at a good time in 2003, and ethnography was just taking off. So it was really kind of neat. I had my own department within BBDO. So I had a, a small team of uh, other account planners, and then I would uh, build up for a project. Um, and I acted more like, as uh, Martin Straw, the, the uh, chief marketing officer of BBDO said, you can't, as an ad agency, you can't, sell services because you are a service, but you can sell products. So I was actually a product that we'd farm out. And ethnography was on the rise. It was really popular. We would compete against other firms like Tom and against Rita and, and, and so forth. Uh, but because we were inside, we could take our insights and work along with the strategy team and work along with the creative team to help build uh, further. It wasn't just a one-off. It was something that was built into it. And did we have uh, trouble with the client, as, you, as you're asking? Did we have any uh, pushback? We always had to incorporate, you know, the psychology and Maslow's hierarchy of needs was always such a dominant thing. We always had to, you couldn't dismiss it. Um, and I got in trouble once with a client. You know, you talk about your success stories, but then you have your, your bad stories. When the client had done a segmentation study and demanded that, you know, the women who were buying, this is for Pizza Hut, women who were buying pizza, mothers who were buying pizza for the weekend were either uh, pressure cooker moms, I remember this name, this was the name of the segment, they were stressed out and they wanted a quick fix for dinner, or they were time off moms and they were planning for a nice whole meal together. And the, you know, when, when we came back, Marianne McCabe helped me with this research. I had hired her for this. And when we came back and said, well, it's not either one typology or the other. Women could be both, you know, it depends on the weekend. They didn't like that. So you're always having to work within the models of what the client has. And remember, whenever you're coming to a project, this is one thing I learned in, in my advice to others, is that there's always been research done before. You're, you, you might be a new thing coming in and you come in with new ideas, but you're always building upon past research and past ideas and past thinking. So you have to, as best as possible, assess where the client is, what they're thinking, and work with that. Uh, not try to say, well, that's wrong or that's off, but build from that. So to your point, with the, the psychological uh, stuff on, on, on deodorant, we didn't say that was wrong, but we said, how can we take this idea of deodorant and fit it into the larger ritual? So we included the psychological ideas of what, what women liked out of fragrances and what and the motivations were. We included that in the ethnography. That seemed to work. And now you've written, you know, so already we've, we've used the word ritual many times and you've written extensively about ritual and magic. And just curious, when you would uh, write up your report and present your findings to the client, would you 
talk about something like ritual, you know, classic anthropology concept, or did you couch that in more business language? Good question. Always take it, you know, take these ideas and I don't want to say simplify, but make them palatable. So um, I would not bring in Van Gennep and Victor Turner and their, their, their stuff on rituals, but talk about how, you know, like in ritual, the idea of liminality is a really great idea that marketers can really capture, you know, this in-between state. And when you, you can tap this into, so again, tapping into existing frameworks that marketers already have. And what's really big in marketing right now is the consumer journey, uh, experience journey. So people move from awareness to interest to, to um, you know, checking things out to, to action, to buying, and, and you look at the sequence. So how do you, how can you take your ideas and, and couch them in terms of these, uh, the models that are already given? And, and this is where, you know, you, you, you have, you, you take the client's learning and try to fit your understanding within the models that they have. So that, that then makes, makes it palatable to them. So I would not bring in high ideas of ritual, but talk about how rituals, you know, work, liminality works uh, as a framework when you're trying to decide, you're bringing in new options, you're, it's a, it's a stage in life when you're maybe moving around. Um, marketers love the idea of, of different stages in life. So this could be a time when people are moving, graduating from college, or they're starting a new job, or they're starting a new family, or they're moving to a new location. So any of these major life events, you can say, well, there are going to be new rituals, and that's maybe an entry point for your brand to get in. So trying to work within the marketers models, and then introducing some of these ideas and taking something like ritual and make it, again, fairly simple, talk about I'll talk about in several steps, uh, but not not too theoretical. Got it. If that makes and sense. I'm certainly going to come back to ritual and magic, given your you know your writings. But just to maybe stay on the concept of working with the models of others, when you were leading your team, were they all anthropologists or were they you know various social scientists, all who would have their own perspectives and models? Well, so within the agency, we had uh, account planners. I worked with several. Um, it's really nice. Yulia Grinberg was at BBDO, and she was one of the, the people that worked in on a lot of my projects. And she got so interested in anthropology, she went off and got a PhD in anthropology. And now she's a business anthropologist. It's great. You see the influence. But typically for a, a project, um, I would have to build it out. So I would... I had contacts of different recruiters that I would, uh, you know, hire. I'd, I'd call a recruiter and say, I have these specifications from the client. We have to look for these kind of uh, uh, respondents. And I'd work with other anthropologists like Marianne McCabe, as I said, numerous times. Um, Rita sometimes, Patty Sunderland, you know, I would bring them in for projects. And, and we typically do three, four, five different markets, and we'd have different anthropologists in different places, and then we'd come together and compare the work that we were doing and, and come up with insights. As you know, it's always tricky because typically in ethnographic work, the client comes along and right away they're seeing things and want to call out insights and say, wow, I saw this, this is a great insight, let's get right to it. And you, you have to kind of say, well, let's wait, let's get the full picture, let's, you know, uh, wait till we get in all the reports and we let this percolate, you know, give it an, an, a week when we're talking back and forth. Uh, and then we'd, we'd, we'd get together. But typically I would bring together some other anthropologists to work on projects and we'd, we'd uh, divide up the work. Uh, Antonella Fabry was another one. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. N a number of different anthropologists. And then we'd um, talk about our research and then uh, put together a report. And you know, what's interesting about that is so right away, or at least as soon as you're in that role, but it sounds like earlier in your career as well, when, um, you know, even even your first sort of introduction into the advertising world, you were already collaborating, which is obviously very different than, you know, your dissertation work um, and obviously presents wonderful opportunities. Uh, but it's also a change from like the traditional structure of, of academic work. I guess even though we are, in fact, really collaborating, you know, with respondents in the field in many ways, right? Uh, it's not formally viewed as that, maybe. And so, 
did that present any you know interesting opportunities or challenges for you? Interesting, you bring that up. I, I you know, I think a lot of anthropologists uh, treat research and their work in the field as their 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 sole project. You know, I'm this is my field. This is mm -hmm. these are my people possessive about that and and maybe it's a natural fit with me being in the business world but collaboration is always part of it you know you're mentioning the books that i worked on well typically they're collaborative efforts i love working with another person throwing off ideas uh putting things out not that it's it, it, you can't write alone i've written a number of uh, articles solo a lot of that but it, it, the idea in business is that you're always collaborating, and I learned that in advertising. You're, you're taking strategic ideas, you're, you're planning out ideas, and people bring in different perspectives. Then you're moving from a, a strategic idea to, to uh, tactical ideas, then you're working with different creative talent, and you're, you're looking at this process. So it's always going to be different people having different inputs and in how this comes together. Always in agreement? No, not at all. There's, 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 there's conflict. There might be tension, but it's towards a goal. And um, working through that, I think, really makes a difference. And I, I think maybe that's one bit of advice that I think anthropologists could learn is to be more collaborative, because that is the nature. Certainly in the business world, it's, it's always collaborative. Uh, you're not the lone warrior out there by yourself no you're you're working with others and you're working towards a, a common goal that you have together and uh you know maybe that's even an opportunity for the way some people approach their any of their academic projects whether it's graduate mm -hmm. you know like yeah, masters or, or phd level but you know, i know from reading one of your articles in the and sort of in the spirit of talking about collaboration or maybe broadly more broadly speaking like work practice you've written about sort of like you know the sort of the uh the sort of magic of that environment especially in advertising and some of the you know some of the behaviors that occur and the rituals that occur and um what i know you said you're the one of the first two classes you took was you know on magic but you've always seemed to have this interest in ritual and magic that maybe is um you know, even though it's such a core concept of anthropology, you seem more interested in it than some who work in business. And so what has it been about, you know, both ritual and magic that has struck you so much and has carried well, through? You brought up a good point. And I, I don't know this. I, I go back to thinking of some of the work I, I did with uh, Brian Moran. I love the fact that anthropology gets into these uh, really interesting questions of, you know, magic magic versus science versus religion is, is is a great question and and i've written about magic we worked in magic because it's so much a part of our lives you know uh max weber said you know we've moved beyond the the role of magic and we're in the realm of bureaucracy and power and order so we don't need the, those 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 structures of magic anymore and nothing could be uh less true uh that when brian and i found we wrote our book magical capitalism and we invited a number of collaborators to help us um, write that and uh, we asked Arjuna Padurai to read to write a forward he was happy to do that it was really great it was a great collaboration uh, on that book and one thing that would that struck us that that many of the authors keep talking about it again is the more uh, orderly uh, uh, functional and prosaic and and uh, scientific sense you have in the world the more you have magic there's they're like the two work together magic isn't just something chaotic out there by itself it works with the sense of order and structure so Malinowski found in the study of the Trobrian Islanders that the natives uh, when they were gardening they wouldn't use magic. They were they had to know about plants and soils and the weather conditions, and they were very smart and knowledgeable about how to plant crops and how to care for them. But it was always in that sense of the unpredictability. When you have a, a big expectation and, and a lot of passion into something that it turns out okay, like you do in advertising, like you do in the world of fashion, and like you do in the world of, 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 of commerce and, and finance, when you have uh, a great interest in something turning out, you control for all the functional variables that you can, but then there's the 
uncontrollable, the intangible that you can't control for. And that's where systems of magic, whether you call it magic or not, are very much in place. Call it luck, call it divination, <coughs> call it, you know, whatever you want. But there's there's that, that sense that you want other forces to help control and, and guarantee some kind of an outcome. And we found that again and again. And it's so true in the world of advertising. You don't quite know how consumers are going to react to an ad. You're putting a lot of money and investment into you know, your research, your project, your ideas, and it's out there. So you have your, well, Malinowski said, you know, you have the magician, the right, and, and the right contextual circumstances, the three things that need to come together for magical formulations in any institution. He said these are required. Mouse said the same thing. Marcel Mouse in his talk of magic. So in advertising, I was just very highly aware of how the advertising agency functions. You have very highly structured ritualistic meetings. You meet with a client, you have certain times, certain deadlines, you have your magicians, you have your uh, your creative team that are often wild and go off on their, they go off walks to come up with ideas. They can take all kinds of liberties that normal people wouldn't. Uh, and then you have the, the context of where you, you, you have a pitch and you talk about the, the brand in a certain way. And, and that is very, again, very structured, very ritualistic. So all these things are formulations for the creation of magic to get the ad out there and, and have success. And that's what Malinowski found uh, deep sea fishing. The Trobriand Islanders would never use magic for like their um, uh, local fishing in the shallow waters, but whenever they were fishing in deep sea where it was dangerous and uh, it was unknown, they used magical spells. So this, what's interesting with anthropology is you can look at what has happened in other times, other places in so-called primitive cultures and see it applied today very much alive. And magic is one of those, rituals is one of those. Um, uh, gift exchange is still something very powerful. The loyalty programs, you can look, you can relook at uh, loyalty programs that a lot of cards use and say, well, that can be better thought of as a type of a gift, gift exchange. It's not just simply currency, but it, there's a promise of a reciprocity in the return and you'll get something back. So there's a lot of anthropological theories that are very useful in business. In so I want to come back to that point in just a second, uh, especially since so many of them are older and they're still with us. But before we get there, I'm just curious on a very practical level, like, you know, the you mentioned how you don't really quite know what's going to happen, you know, with, like, say you put an advert out, you know, you don't really know how anybody's going to respond. And I get that this would be so different across every organization and every practitioner. But in your experience, how well did your research line up with the outcomes that you often got? And I know you're not going to be able to pick like, you know, an accurate number, but just roughly, was it really, you know, aligned or was there still a fair amount of uh, you know, times that it deviated from what you expected? Oh, my job was on the line all the time with that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so we were always trying to come up with insights that were unexpected. And then we would try to advertise, if not advertise, then how to build that into um, uh, strategic solutions. So here's another example. Campbell Soup. We did a lot of work. Campbell's was one of our big clients. And uh, they had fabulous, the Campbell's kitchens where they would cook and prepare uh, food and, and they would have their chefs uh, who could uh, a number of really great chefs that would create from the Campbell soup different recipes that were help for moms so uh, mothers or whoever was doing the cooking so we went out and did a, a number of ethnographic projects looking at the ways mostly women mothers cook for the families but all kinds of configurations how couples do how new trends in cooking and so forth but we looked at home cooking a lot and Marianne and I have written on this we, we wrote a, an article on this and um, you know going here, here I'll throw in a little bit of theory Tim Ingold said you know with, with improvisation versus creativity we, we tend to think of uh, creativity we tend to look at examples by looking backwards and we tend to short uh, short step our, our outcome. You know, we, we think of when we did something that it was a, a simple one, two, three steps that we took to get to this result. Well, same in home cooking. We'd watch these mothers cook meals and we saw them as being very inventive, improv improv 
improvising about recipes putting together they would have an idea of what they wanted to cook but they knew each member of the family how they might adjust different recipes and add this or subtract that they had their cooking utensils so their process of to improvise to while they're cooking and create meals was was quite unique Later, they'd go on, if you went and surveyed them, they'd say, oh yeah, I just created a meal, there's nothing to it. But in the process, they were quite inventive, quite creative. So we, we saw that from Campbell's. We saw that from cooking. We said that, you know, Campbell's, you don't give enough credit to women in cooking. When we were fielded to go out and do these studies, Campbell said dinner is a hassle that mothers have to deal with. They called it the dinner dilemma. So our research was focused on the dinner dilemma. And we all know when you start to look for problems, you tend to find them. If you tend to think of your research on, on cooking as a dilemma, as something that women don't like, that want, they want to get it over with, it's over with. And we, we turned that around and found that women were very creative, very inventive, very thoughtful in, in, in their cooking. And we said to Campbell's, you don't give enough credit to your uh, women, uh, your, to your cooks at doing this, men or women, whoever's doing the cooking. So we helped change, this is not so much advertising, it, it did help in advertising, but we changed their structure on the um, online. So you'd go to Campbell's Kitchen and instead of the chefs recommending meals, we said, and now it's a common practice, have the women uh, who've cooked the recipes bottom up give recommendations of what they've done to adjust these recipes. So it, it becomes more authentic. It becomes something that the creativity of the women have influenced the recipes and, and they've made the changes. It changed the whole dynamic of the website and how you look for recipes because we were validating women and cooking and their creativity rather than looking at something at just simply a dilemma to get done. So again, ethnographic work, uh, looking at um, Anthropological theories are very, very helpful for here. This was great, looking at uh, concepts of creativity. Um, Hallam and Ingle wrote that great book on innovation and creativity. Uh, that's, I think, 2007, Berg. Uh, that what was great in our thinking because we said, if you reflect back, you look, you look and look at something one way, but if you're in the process of doing it, you're improvising, it's very different and it's much more creative than often you give credit to. So we were making that credit known and we helped Campbell's change their website and it was much more successful. Now that also brings up um, the, the contributions we really make to business models to some degree, right? And to strategy more broadly maybe. Um, you know, oftentimes we get kind of buried in, you know, we're working in ads, we're working in technology, but uh, at sometimes the, the bigger context here is the, the or, you know, the organizational sort of appreciation for how this fits into a, a larger strategy. And so, you know, I know uh, some of your work has also, you know, certainly pointed in that direction for sure. And... I know, you know, Bob, who obviously wrote Advertising and Anthropology with, you know, we, we've talked about this and I know he has similar perspectives, but we, I think, collectively feel like anthropologists can contribute a lot more to strategy than maybe is appreciated or maybe than we overtly say that we do. And so, you know, I'm wondering in your experience, were you looked at um, in, in you know, were you were you directly brought in to really craft a much larger organizational strategy, or was it maybe related to more the advertising strategy? Good question. Um, it's it's funny after time, you know, nine ten years at BBDO, more of my work, um, and you know, I teach this now. More of the work got into higher up strategy. So Campbell's is a good example. I did a lot of work with them, um, not just in advertising. Advertising communication strategy, as we call it, is part of the larger marketing strategy. And that then you have your 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 strategic business units, whatever your your units are at, at Campbell's soup, you know, whether it's the type of soup that they have, the type of food that they have. Um, that's that's a, mar a larger higher up order of looking at your business plan, your marketing, your strategy overall. And I was brought into some more discussions about how um, 
you you can look at uh, consumer behavior and you know again it, you're wrestling with the client sometimes uh, who follow segmentation targeting and have specific categories that they like to put the consumer in and sometimes you you know you're, you're again you're working with the client but you may say you know culturally people are not just stuck in a category they can move back and forth they don't always they're not this type of mom who's always under pressure they might have a you know a relaxing time and and you're trying to build that into their strategy so back to the question of uh, coming how that works with higher up strategy uh, sometimes that you would be pulled into sometimes I would be pulled into larger corporate uh, strategic initiatives like Campbell's and how we might uh, look at uh, consumers in different types of ways, always looking for new ways to try and understand your consumer. Then this whole idea of storytelling came along and the consumer journey came along and how narratives fit into that. So, you know, that's I think where we are now. Uh, I'm going to be teaching a class uh, in next week starting and we're going to be talking about the consumer journey and marketers are very interested in that companies are very interested in that you know is that something that is top-down enforced by marketers is it something that you know I, I throw out some words here a paradigm paradigmatic view of looking at the way you have categories and you're trying to create you know the the whole consumer journey from awareness to interest to to consideration to to purchase this is something that marketers have and then force fit the consumer in and and my point of view is are we wrestling with that sometimes we are as anthropologists trying to say no let's look at consumer experience from if ethnographic point of view there's a flow and a processual way of people living life that doesn't fit neat categories so uh, you might you're, you might be helping them by uh, taking what you understand the consumer experience and fitting it into these buckets of, of the categories of the journey as, as they see it um, that might be useful for them is it really is, is it true to the consumer experience I think that's where we're always trying to wrestle with is that really what uh, people are experiencing and how does that reflect on what people are actually uh, how they're consuming products and brands I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, thanks. And so you, um, <laughs> there you mentioned your teaching. So maybe, you know, we'll use that to, to sort of pivot forward. So you're teaching in a business department, uh, which it seems like many business anthropologists actually end up doing. Few of them seem to teach in anthropology departments. Now that's, um, you know, there's, I guess, you know, opportunities and, and challenges there uh, or, you know, I guess one problem is is we're not necessarily having much influence on anthropology departments, though I think we know that can be challenging at times. The opportunity, though, is that we are actually sharing anthropology with students who might not learn it otherwise. And though they might not be graduating as anthropologists, you can at least make the argument that maybe they'll they'll view the world a little bit more anthropologically. Yes, you know concepts, holism, right? And so, now that you're teaching in that department, I mean, was there anything that led you to the business school? Let me first start there. Well, when I I started at when I was at BBDO, I had uh, I first started teaching at Parsons School of Design. They had reached out to me. Uh, the book Advertising and Anthropology had just come out, 2012, and uh, uh, Meg Anderson. Uh, at the, uh, at she was the chair of the department of um, designing and designing research methods. Um, asked me if I wanted to teach, and that was great. It was interesting. The design folks were, were loved ethnographic methods, and it, it it design research methods worked very well there. Um, you know, it was Fordham that then I came in contact with. That was also very uh, serendipitous. Uh, I had we had a. One of the senior people at BBDO had gone to Fordham, and uh, he was a liaison between Fordham and BBDO. And he said, "Tim, you should, you know, meet these uh, people there. You, it'd be great to transition." And you know, 
getting in my 50s, it was time to think about a possible alternative. I was the oldest researcher in the room, which kind of makes you, uh, I, I guess, think twice. Um, and then Fordham had offered me the position in 2012. So that's, I then took a full-time position, left BBDO and took a full-time position at Fordham. Still with contact with BBDOs because we have an internship exchange between the schools. But um, yeah, I really like this shift. It's really great. And as you said, as you mentioned, there are probably quite a few other anthropologists teaching in business schools more than anthropology departments. And it, it's, you know, as business has changed and Fordham is a school that really emphasizes business with purpose. It's a Jesuit school that has uh, the, the whole premise is the, the, their Latin, the cura personalis is to care for the whole person. So right away, the business school is different from a lot of other business schools in that it tries to teach a more ethical uh, uh, direction, ethical stance towards uh, for its students. And anthropology just fit in. They, they embraced uh, a lot of the, the teaching that I have. And, and a lot of the students become very interested in anthropology, which is really great. They, they want to know more about, um, you know, this whole idea of <clears throat> what we have these, these metaphors, speaking of stories and narratives of progress and, and businesses about change and progress. And it's very linear and forward thinking. So uh, it's really, uh, you know, you, you're working with students that try to say, no, look backwards sometimes, look look sideways. I think, um, you know, Jillian Tett said that best, that lateral anthropologists are good at lateral uh, vision. Uh, that's that holistic point of view. And uh, I really try to uh, instill that, those, that, that sense of thinking for students in that the holism, the reflexivity, how is the impact of what you're doing on customers, you know, reflecting back, how, how are you uh, making uh, a positive change in their lives? And this has ethical uh, ideas in, there, in here as well. So how, how are you influencing uh, students to think more ethically about consumption? What brands are really purposeful? What, how can brands uh, add value in people's lives? And I have to say, I got that well from BBDO, you know? Uh, I think that's still a criticism that a lot of anthropologists have of uh, anthropologists in marketing. Do we really need all these goods and items? But you find out that, I mean, Daniel Miller said this best, that brands, products and brands are part of our lives. It's how we construct identities. It's how we build relationships. You can't not be without uh, products and services in, in our sense of care and exchange with other people. So I like to see the role that these brands can have and how can you make that best. When a mother's cooking a meal using Campbell's products, she wants to cook the best meal possible. And I'm looking into that and trying to help her and help Campbell's understand what that is about. So those are the kind of things that I want to teach students and, and I want them to, to pass on. They're going to be the future leaders in business. Uh, and I'm really happy that they're interested in anthropology and, and edict and emic frameworks. We use this a lot. That's very helpful. That's a great way to identify a way of thinking. Uh, um, very, very helpful. Um, concepts of reflexivity, holism, um, the member's point of view, all these kind of things are good ways to look at uh, understanding. And I typically take students through an exercise, you know, the first classes. How do you learn to navigate the New York City subway system? And I say there are edict markers, you know, you, you can look at when the train is arriving next and there are subway maps that tell you how to get around the city, where to go. But emically, you learn things like, um, you know, even though you're sitting in close proximity to other people, you don't look at other people, you don't typically talk to people. Uh, Pre-walking, if you want to get off at a certain destination, when you get on a train, you walk down the, the, the platform to get on the train, then when it lets you off, you're right there. These are things that we learn emically. We learn how to adapt to a system, uh, and it, it is a, a contextual system where we learn a cultural system. So. Um, these are useful for students, and I think it makes them better, hopefully better business leaders. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's 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 really great teaching at a business school. Yeah, and now all the concepts you just mentioned, and this goes back to my earlier brief point, you know, they're sort of the classic concepts of anthropology. And, you know, they've stuck around for a reason, right? They have value. They've proven to be true. They have value. Very useful. 
Um, but it doesn't seem like we've had anything, you know, modern that has gained as much attention. Um, and as somebody who writes a lot yourself, you know, and uh, I think has a, I'd say has a strong interest in theory. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, do you see like, you know, is there is there a gap today that we're missing? Is there an opportunity there that you know that we could be doing work in a certain area, maybe, and uh, or is you know is it just the way that maybe you know anthropology is is practiced today? Maybe because of even like agreements we have at work that like we can't contribute back so much because a lot of the information because of intellectual property. I don't know any thoughts at all on on anything in there. Yeah, you know, Matt, you're right. I think there are, we use a lot of, as you said, these were older, familiar concepts. Um, what, what's new that we can teach? And I think there really is. Um, I'm really interested in the whole new digital anthropology that, that the way things are going. And I think the role of technology, the role of technology and change is really a really fertile ground. I know this is your area. It's really a, a huge direction for anthropologists. And, I, you know, I just finished reading an article in this, I mentioned this book earlier, Digital Anthropology. Sarah Pink, I talked about um, the role of technology in anthropology futures. And we talk about anthropology futures, which is similar to design anthropology. And, you know, we can look at like the role of technologies uh, and, and how influential they are because they're, they're non-predictive, uh, take a non-predictive stance. We really don't know. We think a technology is complete. We think it's something that is finished, but really all technologies are really ongoing. There's something that are uh, developing. There, there's a, a um, contingent sense of technology. Uh, an example, this is something we actually wrote about this in our magic book as well. Uh, this is just an article just a couple of weeks ago in, in the New York Times. And it was about the problems that uh, Google Maps, and I guess they also own Waze, uh, the problems that they've had with uh, what they've heard reported back from some drivers who've gotten stuck and stranded. Um, you know, for instance, in Colorado, uh, with all the heavy traffic, some of the, the people are using GPS and, and Google Maps to tell them alternative routes to take. Well, people take these routes and what Google Maps and Waze doesn't take into account is the snowbound conditions. So people, <clears throat> even with SUVs, are getting stuck in the middle of nowhere uh, from their device telling them to go on this alternative route. And it tells you that, you know, technologies are good, but they're not perfect. They don't quite they can't predict what's going to happen with the weather. They, they don't bring this into the, 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 the planning for this. And what we wrote in our magical capitalism is people tend to have faith in these GPS technologies. They follow them blindly, even when they, even when it goes against common sense. So it's a snowstorm out, the conditions are bad. An alternative road is telling you to go down this windy, twisty road. Well, you'd think you wouldn't take that, but uh, the GPS is telling you to do it, so you're going to follow it blindly. That's really faith in, in technology, this magical faith. Um, our example that we used in the book was that uh, this driver was uh, headed, uh, he needed to go to the Reykjavik airport, and he was driving in the wrong direction because he had put one letter wrong, the name of the uh, Reykjavik Airport is kind of long and weird for Americans to spell out and he typed in a wrong, put in a wrong number. Well, it took him to a fishing village because the GPS was correct, but he followed, even though the signs on the road kept saying, you know, other way, other way for the airport, he followed this 200 miles later, he was in this fishing village because he said, well, I followed my GPS and that's, again, this faith in magic. So. Back to your point, I think there's a huge opportunity for anthropologists to look at the role of technology, the incompleteness of technology. Look at the promise that we had with um, self-driving cars. You know, um, talk with other anthropologists about this. We were by now supposedly gonna have all these self-sufficient self-driving cars, but still AI is not good enough. Cars nowadays can, you know, drive by themselves. You can let the steering wheel go on the highway, the new Cadillac, and it'll slow down and, and, and alert for um, traffic head, but it, it 
depends on you being there and, and alert and, and, and uh, watching the road. If they even have a camera on, on your face, if you are down falling asleep or reading a book, it'll, it'll stop because technology isn't quite there. So that, that contingent nature of technology, the incompleteness, uh, even though we have, it promises better futures. I think that's a, just a really fertile area for anthropologists to look into uh, new research. Uh, I think that's a, an exciting future. Yeah, interesting observation. And uh, so is there anything that you're working on or that you and your colleagues are working on that you'd like to mention? Sure. So, uh, you know, um, continue with writing. I'm, uh, as I said, I'm interested in this role of technology in the digital. I'm working on a chapter in a book on that. But I do want to have a call out for, uh, you know, we had the uh, seminar, the um, uh, summit, the anthropology, business anthropology summit 2019, and working with Elizabeth Bridey, you know, and Ryle Nolan, we're going to be having a career readiness commission, which really is a great workshop for um, both students and faculty are looking to get uh, anthropologists looking at how to expand and get careers in the real world. We're going to be having a hosting an event at Fordham at Gabelli School of Business. That's at Lincoln Center on May 13th. Um, God willing, no more COVID and everything is, we can do it in person. I think we should be set for this, but I wanted to have a call out for that. So uh, you'll see, uh, I know Elizabeth has some announcements that she'll be uh, kicking around for that, but the, this Career Readiness Commission getting students and uh, anthropologists ready for careers, uh, workshops and speakers and so forth. This will be May 13th in New York City, Fordham University Gabelli School of Business at Lincoln Center. Um, that'll be on in May. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I've enjoyed uh, this time talking with you, Matt, very much. I love the work that you're doing and you're pushing this forward, getting anthropologists out there and, and known and helping them get jobs. This is really what it's all about. Great. Well, thanks, Tim. Appreciate that. And, and, and thanks very much for coming on. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.